And I didn't understand that for a while. And I didn't understand that about some of his other survivor friends. So it took me a while to, to get that. And, and one thing that I've learned in my travels talking to believers and non-believers is that in many ways, I don't think the questions about science, I, 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 the, my book is divided into six sections about science and God, about the historicity of the Bible, about bad parts of the Bible, about prayer. Um, but the hardest question for believers to answer is how can an all-good God let such evil exist in the world? And that's really the hardest question for a believer. Um, I think all the other questions are actually not necessarily easy questions, but they're easier than that. And so what, uh, what road did that take you down? So that road took me down trying to figure out a couple of things. Number one, how does such evil exist in the world consistent with my belief that there's a God and that that God is, is, is a good God. It's an omniscient God. It's an omnibenevolent God. Um, and that took a lot of thinking. I mean, that was many, many years of thinking and many, many years of understanding sort of thinking about human nature. And, I mean, it's a longer answer, but I'm going to give you a really short summary of what I think our basic problem is in humanity and why I'm so, so worried and really why I wrote the book, which is my father and what happened to all the Jews in Sfexner and the six million Jews in the, in the Holocaust was they were a victim of, of idolatry. And, you know, we think, and the Bible came to really combat idolatry. That was what the Bible is about. Most of us think, particularly in the modern era where we don't give too much thought to this, that idolatry is just about some quaint bowing down to idols. But idolatry is really something much more severe. It's a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings like people like you and me. Um, ideologies, natural processes, and these idolatries are all promulgated with poetry, pageantry, theater, myth, all, of course, backed up by secret informers and powerful state-sponsored armies or violence. So we may have thought that we, 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 we beat the god-king pharaoh, you know, 3,300 years ago. But in reality, the whole 20th century was a catalog of God, King, Pharaohs. Hitler, of course, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family. Um, and it goes on and on and on. And how did Stalin kill all the Cossacks, starve a quarter of the Ukraine, um, send tens of millions to the gulag, many of whom, most of whom probably died. Because nobody, he was, he was the truth giver. What he said was truth. When Hitler said the Jews were vermin, that was truth. They weren't human. I mean, 
both Hitler and Stalin used all of the poetry and pageantry and parading. And I mean, Stalin famously had his, his image projected into space by the Soviet Space Agency. Uh, Hitler was certainly made into a god king. Uh, and and when you have that kind of idolatry, the other people, the other side, aren't human. They actually don't count. They don't count for anything. And that's a real problem because it can happen on a large level and it can happen on a small level. Let me just leave you with one or two more paragraphs because I think it'll lead into maybe uh, the rest of the conversation too. Is that this sort of idolatry can happen not only on a macro basis, but it also happens on in our most intimate encounters. I mean, how did how did Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and Harvey Weinstein and, and unfortunately the Rose list goes on and on get away with what they got away with? It's because of Charlie Rose was unquestioned and unquestionable. What he said at CBS was true. If Harvey Weinstein said a starlet had talent, she had talent and she was given roles. If he said no, then she didn't have a career in, 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 in she did not have a career in, in Hollywood or at least at whatever his his um his uh, his his company was. So these people had real super authority. And this idea they didn't claim to have superpowers like Pharaoh did, but they certainly had super authority. And they were idols. And and unfortunately, we're living in an environment where idolatry is back. And that's why I am so worried about the world. And that's what, to a certain degree, drove me to write this book. Because what the Bible came to do, fundamentally, was to upturn idolatry. Overturn idolatry. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Scott Shea. He is the author of In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that is going to involve a great deal of speculation, and I don't suspect you're going to give me a a solid answer, but give me the the best answer you can for this. Uh, Reading the book, uh, it's very clear that the Bible lays down parameters for how kings rule, and those parameters are rather stringent. So, first of all, how did the Christian kings in particular fall so far from these strictures if if they were using the Bible uh, as, as their touchstone, if you will? Um, and second, if the kings of Europe maintained the the lofty goals of the definition of king or monarch in the Bible, do you think that we would still have monarchies because they would be they would be good, they would be efficient? So let's that's a great question, actually, because the Bible sets up, and indeed Hugo Grotius, and if you if you read, there's a great there's a great book called uh, by Eric Nelson called the Hebrew Republic, 
where he basically says that the Enlightenment and that the idea of divided powers was guided by the government, by, guided by the Bible. So if you think about it, the Book of Samuel describes a power structure where the king is commander-in-chief, the king has to, is in charge of building roads, ensuring national security, uh, making sure that there's a, 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 a national fisc, but the king is constrained by the Sanhedrin, an independent judicial court system that he has nothing to do with. The king is constrained by prophets who can tell him, like, Nathan, you're wrong, and has an independent power base. And ironically, church and state are separated. The, the, the temple had its own independent um, monetary source for the shekel, for the half of shekel. So you had these this four-part government where not anybody, because the government, again, the, the Bible, again, doesn't think that anybody should have super authority or super power, because even prophets can go off the deep end. You know, there's a whole point in the Bible about false prophets. So it's all about maintaining that balance. And in the end, the people have a voice, too, because if you recall, when um, Solomon dies and you have uh, Yeroboam and Rehoboam um, who divide up, who, you know, the ten tribes versus the two tribes, there's about to be a civil war. And, uh, and, and, and in the Bible, there's a story that God comes to Rehoboam and says, nope, don't fight this one. The people don't want it. Um, and there's cases later, you know, in, in terms of uh, monarchs who are part of the Davidic dynasty who the people sort of pick, um, who aren't necessarily the top pick. There's at least one instance of that. So the people have a rule, too. The people have a role, too. Um, this is obviously pre our modern sense of democracy. And the people even decide on them a kingship. Samuel thinks it's not such a hot idea. So if you maintain that division, and by the way, the whole book of Kings, if you read it, it's so funny in a certain kind of way, if you read it with a sense of humor, because the only people who come out really good in the book of Kings are people who are the common people. The, um, the Kings all come out with lots of flaws. And I think that the Bible gives a thrust toward a divided government toward no one having sort of a totalitarian uh, hegemony over rule. Uh, there's always that division. There's always that nobody has, nobody is the sole spokesperson for God. Nobody can weaponize the power of the Bible. Unfortunately, power is really, really tempting. And so people easily get corrupted. And the kings of the Bible get corrupted. And sadly, the kings in the Middle Ages and the later kings get pretty corrupted. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, the popes get pretty corrupted at, at various points in time. Um, because it's so tempting to say, Look, I'm ruling by divine right. Therefore, I'm the sole spokesperson for God. And the irony is, 
that's what the whole third commandment, at least the way Jews and Catholics and some Protestant sects count it, you know, the third commandment is don't take God's name in vain because if you do, there's no redemption. What is that doing there? Well, it's not about swearing using God's name. It's about saying, don't say you're the sole spokesperson for God. Because if you do, it's really, really dangerous. And when we find cases of people who do that, then bad things start to happen. I mean, when when Ayatollah Khomeini took over as uh, in 1979, he said that the Baha'i were not a valid religion. They had no right to their religion because it came after Mohammedism, came after Islam. So they all needed. They had no right to. They had no right to religion or to life. So that set off a mini genocide. And he was able to do that because he was deemed the sole legitimate spokesperson for God. It's really, really dangerous when that stuff starts to happen. We have just a couple of minutes left, but uh, I know that you are also rather well studied in Islam. Uh, Do you know if the Quran also encourages uh, a division of powers? So... I'm not, I'm not, I don't claim to have the same background in, um, in Islam as I do in, uh, Judaism and Christianity. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go there, but I, I will say this, that in modern Islamic countries where there are monarchies, there are also, um, assemblies that, um, that are the case, Kuwait, Kuwait and others have, there's a sense, and I can't remember the word offhand, but there is, the leader was supposed to have a consultative assembly, and indeed not supposed to rule solely by uh, himself. He was supposed to have a consultative, a consultative assembly. And that, that, the name of the consultative assembly escapes me. Uh, you're forgiven. Scott, listen, we are down to the wire for this episode of Common Threads, but uh, I've got many more questions to ask. This is very interesting. So if you could make it uh, back with us next week, we'd be much obliged. It would be a pleasure. This has been a great, and it's gone so fast. It, it, It usually does. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Scott Shea has been my guest, and he'll be with us next week. We're talking about his book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue.
Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Scott Shea. He's the author of In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. A little bit about our guest. Scott is a co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank and a longstanding Jewish community activist. Shea started a Hebrew school, an adult educational program, and chaired several Jewish educational programs. He is the author of Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jewry, and has been thinking about religion, reason, and modernity since wondering why his parents sent him to Hebrew school. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Scott Shea. Hello, Scott. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back. Certainly, certainly. Quick question. I just mentioned Hebrew school. You did not have a great experience in Hebrew school. And I know a number of people who did not have great experiences in Hebrew school. What's it all about? <laughs> why why are there these people who have adults who have these negative memories of Hebrew school? So if you had given me a choice between in Hebrew school studying the Bible or actually eating the Bible, I probably would have eaten it. That's how bad <laughs> my, my experience was. Um, it was terrible. Um, you know, I did it four days a week after a full day of, 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 of school. Nobody wanted to be there. Uh, we wanted to get out and play. We wanted to get out and do something else. And here we were stuck in Hebrew school. It was, and, and the thing was, is that for many of our, for not my parents so much, I can't really blame them for this, but for many of my co-students, I mean, we were actually doing Hebrew school not to learn anything, but to get to the point of Barabat Mitzvah where we could be a display piece for our parents. And then it was all over. The uh, mantra was, you know, I suffered through Hebrew school. You'll <laughs> suffer through Hebrew school. But don't worry, when it's all over, you can quit and you'll have some presents. <laughs> it, was re- it was really poorly done. So that's why my, my wife and I started something called Jewish Youth Connection, where we decided to reimagine Hebrew school. And by the way, that's why we decided High Mitzvah to start High Mitzvah, which is an adult Jewish education uh, um, group, has grown very nicely um, to, to, to sort of reteach the basic lessons that people should have gotten in, in, in Hebrew school, because for many, Hebrew school is like a pediatric Judaism. I mean, you can't, what we just, what we discussed in our last conversation is totally in the Bible. I mean, it's very biblically based, but you can't teach that to an eighth grader. Um, you you know, and, 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 and it's really important that these, these stories be understood. They're, you know, sort of the basic lessons of the Bible. And what I found too, and this is one of the things that actually got me to writing the book is that I had Christian friends and some, and some, I would say lapsed Muslim friends who would ask me questions, particularly after my first book, uh, about Judaism, getting our groove back. And they knew I was uh, part of the, you know, had started time. They asked me questions, and I would gently guide them to books in their own faith. But I realized that a lot of folks in all religions today really have had no substantial 
religious background, that the religious background they get is in college, where professors essentially tell them that's very nice that you believe in God, but don't worry. We're here to educate you and release you from these false superstitions of your parents that you're clinging to. And I'm barely exaggerating when I say that. So In Good Faith has actually started to uh, become an a, a interfaith text um, because it's it's while I wrote it from a Jewish perspective, I talked to bishops, ministers, imams, um, and a whole group of of different of of believers from different faiths on the fundamental questions of how does it make sense to believe in God in the modern era with all we know about science and the historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality? I think. We need to reclaim that space. And so my Hebrew school experience, I think, was just emblematic, and it's sort of become a lifelong mission for me. So if to reclaim Jewish, to reclaim not just Jewish education, but religious education. So if you have a student today going to your group, they're still going yeah. to come out with enough Hebrew to get bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, correct? They will. But the way we teach it in our group at Jewish Youth Connection is we do it through big brothers, big sisters. So we take the drudgery out of learning Hebrew. We don't do it in a class format. Um, we have high school or college, stu- college students teach it. And then the class is about, obviously it's age appropriate, but it's about all the stuff we've been talking about. What is the Bible trying to say to us? What was so great about Abraham? Why do we, why, what, what did Moses have in mind? Um, what were these Ten Commandments all about? And, you know, and, and the heroism that you learn from Yehuda standing up, Judah standing up and giving his speech to Joseph. I mean, these are the important questions that people really need to know. I mean, I, the Hebrew I learned in Hebrew school was to decode. I could decode Hebrew words. In other words, I could read them out loud. But I had no clue what they meant. No clue what they meant. And we try to teach kids, we try to teach our children the basics of what they of see, what we call Sidur, prayer book Hebrew. So when people who graduate our program go to synagogue, they can make out what the Sidur, what the prayer book is all about. And if we can do that, we've, you know, I think we've done a great service. And know why they're there. And what are these holidays about? You What's s- Passover about? Well, that's why you're supposed to ask questions on Passover, right? That is correct. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, you, you nailed it. And that's why we have the four <laughs> children as part of the Passover Seder, mm. who are all asking questions, and you answer every one of them. You I, don't ignore anybody. I have friends who every night at dinner when it's not Passover, have the youngest child ask, why is this night like every other night? That's wonderful. You say to wait until you finish your book, the book we're talking about, before going to New Zealand. Couldn't you take Uh the book with you? I mean, it is a long flight. Couldn't you read it on the way? Oh, yeah. You can read it on the way. As a matter of fact, you can even listen to the audio book on the way. There you <laughs> because go. Because it's about the same time as, uh, it's probably less time. You'd finish it and you'd have time to take off your, your earphones for dinner and for a movie. 
Perfect. Perfect. All right. I'm glad we got... Are you going to New Zealand sometime soon? No, but just in case I wanted to go, (laughs) or if I knew somebody that was going... I would uh, recommend they take the book with them as opposed to go to New Zealand, then wait until the trip is done to, to, to uh, read the book. Um, you, you mentioned, okay, last week we talked about uh, idolatry, and that is yeah. a theme that comes up, and we will remind people, if they did not hear last week's uh, program, that you are not talking about people who just bow down to statues. Idolatry is much, much broader than that. And you you often use the term uh, polytheists as well. Yeah. But I, I suspect from reading the book that you're not just talking about people who happen to believe like in the, the ancient deities of Rome or Greece. So what is a polytheist in, in your sense? It's any time you, so just to recap the definition that I give, it's, it's any time, idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings, ideologies, or natural processes. So you can make almost anything an idolatry. I mean, you can make science an idolatry. Science is great. I believe in science. I love antibiotics and anesthesia whenever I've had to have surgery, um, and and I you know I, and I and vaccinations I believe in them I'm double vaxxed. but you can't say things like society like science knows how the why the world was created or like Sam Harris says science science provides us with morality it doesn't science is an evidence based process that allows us to learn about how the real world around us operates. But if you start calling things the science and you start ascribing morality and, and other aspects that, that science can't know and can't even claim to know, then you can turn science into a, you can turn science into a, uh, an idolatry. You can turn racism into an idolatry. You can turn almost anything into an idolatry. People become, you can turn, the search for wealth into an idol because it is a super authority and superpower. So anytime you deify something that doesn't deserve to be deified, there's only one thing that deserves to be deified, which is a one God that cares about justice for everyone. And it's not anything like us. And that's why people are so easy to be deified. That's why I love. And one thing that's central to my thinking is the golden rule, which uh, the way the ancient sage Hillel put it, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian scriptures, um, is don't do unto uh, someone else what you wouldn't want done unto you. Because anytime you do that, you're deifying yourself. You're saying, you know, Stalin wouldn't have wanted to send himself to the gulag. He had no right to put himself above. Mao caused the death of 75 to maybe as many as 100 million of his comrades. He wouldn't have wanted to do that to himself. And anytime you think something is okay for the good of communism, for the good of the the ideology, for the good of whatever, that you wouldn't want done to you, you're essentially becoming an idolater. And that's why the best way to combat that 
is the golden rule. And I tell that the, the questions that I have with atheists, and I, we referred to that in the last section because I've had a last uh, discussion because I've had a lot of conversations with atheists. I can make common cause with any atheist who abides by the golden rule. But I can't make common cause with someone who says that the golden rule doesn't apply to their... I mean, I had this conversation with someone again at the, I was saying at Google who was kept saying that, well, Kant told us reason is enough. Well, reason can lead you to all sorts of bad outcomes. Um, if you start treating society as opposed to an individual, for example, Pete Singer, who's one of the, probably the greatest atheist moral philosopher of this year, says it's okay to commit infanticide. Why? Because if a child is born that's going to need substantial resources from society, is, it can be uh, euthanized, then that money can be used for other more worthwhile things that will benefit society. And I had, I, during the course of my business career, I met a, a medical director for a major U.S. insurance company who said that if we just stopped treating all people below 30 days old or above 75 years old with anything but routine medical care, in other words, you could give them antibiotics, you could do basics, but nothing major, then we could save 20% of all medical costs in the United States at least and send everyone to college for free. Now, reason gets you there. It's, 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 it's logical. It's quantitative, what I just said. It's tr probably true. I'm not, I don't have the numbers offhand, but I sounds like it could be right. But it doesn't strike me as morally right. And that's what happens when you start saying, well, I want to treat people differently than I would want to treat my child or me or my parents. And that's when reason can lead to all sorts of dangerous, dangerous places. And, and that's why the golden rule and, this, and idolatry are so closely, closely linked. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is author Scott Shea, and we are talking about his book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. As we mentioned uh, last week, and you alluded to it just a, a moment ago, Scott, being in discussion with atheists, there are so many points in the book where if, if you, you just, if you carefully edited the book, somebody might think that you were supportive of atheists or agnostics simply because you agree with many different points. But then you, of course, you always bring it around to your support for monotheistic belief. But nonetheless, uh, as I said, I'm impressed that you, you don't just push them all out the window, say they're wrong, and, and get on your soapbox. What are the things that you see in the current uh, um, discussions between atheists and uh, people who believe in religion, where you're saying, well, you wait, wait, we got to listen to these people because they've got a point here, there, and somewhere else? What, what are those issues? 
So look, I think there was, I, I think that atheists in a way, and sometimes do believers a favor, favor because they helped point out where idolatry infiltrates religion. And it usually goes to having soul spokespeople for God. And, and, and that's very, very dangerous. And I think that, that, you know, that the idea of amulets, the idea of, you know, certain objects being used, um, the things that creep into superstition beliefs that have, that, that go away from the idea of justice. I go the the I go away from the idea of um, the golden rule. When atheists point that out, they actually do believers a service because it's tempting, particularly for leaders and particularly for leaders in organized religion, to weaponize religion for political or other purposes because they have that they have power. And the question is whether they're going to abuse that power. And, you know, look, the, the Bible says, gives the greatest compliment to Moses. It only gives really one compliment to Moses. It says, uh, it says, uh, he was, Isha Navi was the most, he was the most, and Ebert says he was the most, he was the most humble person on earth. Now, that didn't mean that Moses didn't know that he brought down the ten commandments and that he was involved in the parting of the sea, but he had humility. And sometimes religious leaders lose humility. And then it's not so bad for atheists to put religious leaders who you, who lose humility into their appropriate place. Um, so, I, that's why I said I can make common cause with atheists who uh, believe in the golden rule. Now, where I can make common cause is where people like, you know, Sam Harris, who say things like, you know, believers are dangerous. They should be put into cages because they're, they're dangerous to other people um, because they believe that they, that their way is the only way. I mean, I think, again, atheists can also descend into idolatry very quickly. Uh, I think it was G.C. Chesterton who said something, when people stop believing in God, they'll believe in anything. And that's a risk, too. And I think believers have to point that out. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's my Pete Singer um, theory, um, uh, not theory, my example, which is, you know, it's easy to come up with Theories that are false theories, and these false theories can actually negate the facts right in front of you. And I think that's unfortunately something that we are more and more finding in our current environment. When people say, you know, uh, well, these things may be happening, but they're not consistent with the theory that we have for justice or the theory that we have for politics or the theory, well, sometimes you have to look right at the person in front of you and figure out what is best right for the person in front of you. And that becomes harder and harder. I mean, in my, that's the reason in all candor, I wrote my new book 
Conspiracy U, which I see frighteningly on campus. People are coming up with theories that are negating facts, both from basically the far right and the far left. Um, and they become somewhat of idolatry, somewhat of cults. And we're losing our, we're losing the point where we're tethering how we act to the golden rule, to just worrying about not treating others the way we wouldn't want to be treated because we've got this theory of how the economy should work or how relations should work or whatever. And, and, and ultimately, the common golden rule, and I think religion is all about treating every other person with a, as, a, as though they're a spark of divinity and a spark of humanity and that we want to treat them the way we should treat them the way we would want to be treated ourselves. A little bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but no, it's it was an important one. Absolutely, no, it was a fine answer. Um, we have just a little bit of time left, but I hope you, we can uh, deal with this uh, question uh, succinctly. So, in talking about understanding the reality of the Bible, obviously, a lot of controversy there. Some people don't know what to do with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, you, you say they are metaphor, not myth. I've actually heard the term myth used in a sense that is much more like metaphor as opposed to just a fairy tale. But is there a difference, just personally now, is there a difference between the way you look at, say, the accounts in kings or the accounts in judges versus say noah's flood story or joseph's captivity or the creation story you see what i'm saying yes for sure okay tell us about that so first of all let me let me just give you you know a a um the first 11 chapters of the bible um I mean, I have, I actually put together a list because I think this is very important. Well before, well before, you know, the relatively well before, you know, even Sir Isaac Newton, I, I do this on page 268, I show that, that the ancient thinkers, I mean, you know, ancient Muslim thinkers, Alberino, Ancient is Hebrew thinkers, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Yitzhak of um, Augustine of Hippo, Christian thinkers, really, really long ago didn't take the first 11 chapters of the Bible um, so seriously. Alberino uh, Baruni, who was a 10th century Muslim, estimated that the universe was billions of years old. Tirzah um, a 13th century scholar, he came up, I thought this was amazing, he came up with an estimate based upon some numerical calculations in the Bible that the universe is 15.3 billion years old, which is actually pretty good compared to modern science. Um, and it goes on and on. Rob, Rob Rambam gave it, you know, said it was, it was a long time ago. Augustine of Hippo said it was, you have to read it as an allegory. Allegory. So, this isn't some modern apologetica. 
Um, because what I found and what I emphasize is that a lot of the readers, particularly the atheists, the evangelical atheists, read the Bible literally, but not seriously. Whereas these scholars and modern scholars take it seriously, but not necessarily literally. And the Bible was not written to be a history book. I mean, if you look at some of the stories in the Bible in about David, about others, um, in Kings, they're, they're making a point. I mean, the whole reason for the Book of Kings was Jeremiah or somebody was writing that book from exile, it's clear, wondering how did this institution of the Davidic dynasty, which started off with such promise, get so bad? I mean, there was a, there was definitely a theme that they're writing. I mean, otherwise you can't understand the book of Kings if you don't get that. And that goes on and on. So you, this isn't a history book and, and, and the Bible never intended itself to be a history book. But if you don't read it by understanding the power of when Judah stands up and says, take me as a slave instead of, instead of Benjamin, I'll be your slave, and recaptures the sense of brotherhood, then you're missing. You're not taking the Bible seriously. You're taking it, again, overly literally. And what I try to do in the book is explain that, because so many people just focus on the bad parts of the Bible, the awkward parts. I actually go through them all, not all, but I go through the, the sort of the most difficult parts, and I show Read it in context. Read what it says when the Jews are commanded, the Israelites are commanded to go into the uh, into Canaan. Are they commanded to actually um, uh, uh, kill everyone? Well, actually, if you read it carefully, the answer is no. No that um, that is that is very that is very true. Uh, one thing I did want to mention about the book is that you do take those very challenging elements in the Bible and give context and explanation, and I appreciate that. But, Scott, we are down to the wire. We uh, okay. appreciate your presence here today and last week as well so much. And uh, good luck with the, the book that's coming out later this year. Thank you. October 12th, and it's uh, and if anybody wants to reach me, they can reach me at scottshay.com, where I not only write about matters of religion, but I, re- I write about economics, LIBOR, I cryptocurrencies, things that have to do with, uh, I try to pull it all together. Wonderful. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Scott Shea has been my guest. We've been talking about his book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.